Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 news, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts Podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Our second season of this podcast delves more deeply into a variety of popular sources of news and information. And on this episode, we turn to another high-profile social media platform, Twitter. A 2019 Pew Research Center study found that 22% of U.S. adults use Twitter. It also found the 10% of users who are most active in terms of tweeting are responsible for 80% of all tweets created. Of course, one of those highly active users is President Donald Trump, who has made Twitter a primary source of communicating his message since being elected four years ago. That has created some controversy, as has the platform's efforts to get a grip on how it handles content that could be considered misinformation or hate speech and the users who create that content. To help us better understand Twitter, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Deb Roy, professor of media arts and sciences at MIT. He is director of the Lab for Social Machines and executive director of the MIT Media Lab. And from 2013 to 2017, he served as Twitter's chief media scientist. Dr. Roy, thanks for being with us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. My pleasure. Before we dig into some more specific questions, I want to kind of start with a a more broader question. And that is, are we looking at another kind of crossroads moment for Twitter and some of these other platforms Uh, We have a heated election, a polarized nation, countries also dealing with a pandemic and issues of racial justice. Will how platforms like Twitter are navigating this situation, this time, have a potentially long-lasting impact and repercussions for them? I definitely think it's an important moment for the social media platforms. You know, in 2016, if there was anyone left, um, <laughs> who was active on the internet, who hadn't stopped to think about um, the role that social media plays, you know, in their lives personally and and for us as a democracy, um, I I think we all um, had a moment to stop and reflect. And at this point, as we go into um, the most unusual election, I think of all of our lifetimes, um, r- realizing that social media is um, woven into our lives and um, and the just collective attention on the platforms and the attention that now um, through the media and and so on that is on the platforms yeah I think this is a singular moment it probably has felt like that for several years now <laughs> if you were um, you know operating one of these platforms but it feels more heightened than ever so yeah I think this is this is um, a, a a new chapter opening up for them. 
Having said that, let's go back a little bit first. And, and as we look at Twitter, how far has it come from what it was when it emerged on the scene in, in 2006? How different is it from what was kind of initially imagined for Twitter? Yeah, that's a great question. That you know, of course, I I wasn't there when it began. I I joined uh, myself, I think, around 2011, and um, uh, you know, from the beginning, I, I think that Twitter had at least two different ideas for what it was for. You know, when you, you talk to people at Twitter and as they were building it, that it's a way to um, let the world know what's on your mind and what you're doing. And it's also a way to find out what's happening in the world. And sort of those two, you know, very personal, you know, me as an individual broadcasting my thoughts um, or being able to tune in to, to people and, and topics that I care about um, really has been um, sort of the two uses or the two reasons uh, to be on Twitter from the beginning. Which one's more important and why are people going to it? it maybe has ebbed and flowed. But, um, you know, and, and just the simplicity originally of, you know, 140 characters and it hits end and off it goes to whoever cares to follow you in this sort of transparent and open world. Um, it was a simple, lightweight, you know, way to, uh, to, um, to share your thoughts and, and tune into others. Um, in, in some ways, the experience on Twitter is remarkably similar to those early days. But when you have hundreds of millions of people using them, including um, sitting politicians and, um, you know, journalists and others who rely on it as a kind of central information service, of course, um, it's, it's meaning and the weight of what it means to uh, operate Twitter or to be on Twitter um, has has changed completely. So in some ways, it's surprisingly similar to the original. Um, in other ways, uh, its meaning and importance has um, is um, maybe unrecognizable from the early days of finding out what someone had for breakfast as being <laughs> one of the main things you could learn on Twitter. At this juncture, do we have a sense of what Twitter users in general look like? Uh, you know, who's using it and how much? Well. I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm just looking up here, uh, according to Google, or, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when we look at the um, uh, current sort of stats, about 48 million people in the U.S. Um, are on Twitter. So that means, of course, more people in the U.S. are not on Twitter than are, um, but it's a, it's a pretty large sample. I think there is you know, some groups, if you're over the age of 65, last I checked, um, you might be underrepresented, you know, in, in that, if you treat that as a sample of the population, there's uh, some groups that are overrepresented. But, you know, so tens of millions of people um, on the platform. And um, I, I, I don't know how to characterize beyond that. I know mm -hmm. just personally, I have a lot of friends who are in the media industry and journalists and so forth. And it seems pretty much mandatory to be on Twitter if you're right. in certain professions, right? And then if you're a news junkie, if you're a political junkie, it's probably hard to stay away. Um, but there's a lot of uh, people who are on there purely for entertainment or they're just following, um, you know, area. So they're into cooking and, right. and food and that's what they use Twitter for. So 
there really is um, everything under the sun it, uh, that it, you can find there. I, and it's funny because you, you've talked a little bit about, you know, particularly the initial attempt was kind of be giving give people an opportunity to kind of give their thoughts. And also, as we're talking, we, we talk about it being a place where you can get information, whether it be you know, if you're a news junkie or someone who's interested in cooking or something like that. Uh, and I guess I, I want to delve a little bit into kind of that, that dual role, because some of your research you know, has examined how Twitter can be used to measure public opinion, the kind of you know, people broadcasting their thoughts piece of it. And I found this fascinating mm-hmm. since one of the things we hear a lot of times from critics of Twitter is, well, Twitter isn't real life suggesting it doesn't really reflect the world as it is, or maybe all of the world, or enough of the world to, to be useful in, in understanding you know, what public opinion is. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your research and what it found about it as a, as a public opinion kind of source? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I've never really understood when people have uh, brought that point up, because I, I, I think it's clear that you know, it's it, there are lots of real human beings on Twitter, often sharing what they think about different things. Um, of course, um, when you are sharing your opinions or sharing your thoughts, and you know, um, also just sharing, like sharing something you saw that you think others should see, um, it, it is a kind of. Uh, it's like a performance. You, you you know that other people are going to see what you're saying. And so you might say certain things if a pollster calls you up and you're having a confidential, you know, um, conversation um, or you're filling in a survey um, versus tweeting in, into, um, you know, into sort of the public airwaves, so to speak, um, that you're going to say different things, right, in different contexts. But I don't know how um, uh, it's it, – it's any less true of an indication of what someone's on someone's mind. Yeah, there's certain things you'll say in one context and not another, um, but I think it's a it's it's a reasonable listening channel um, for what's on people's minds. So, you know, in our research, um, I'll give you a couple of examples. One um, is during the 2016 presidential election. We were interested in um, just sorting through as many tweets as we could. And so we, you know, uh, developed some software to automate a lot of this um, to see whenever someone tweeted and it looked like the tweet was about the presidential election and they were tweeting about a specific issue like immigration or gun control or abortion, um, we would try to find those tweets and um, in, in simplest terms, just count how often were people tweeting about one issue versus another, just as a way to get a, a gauge on where were people's collective attention? You know, what was the sort of share of voice? If you had a million people tweet in the last day about some issue, how many of those are about gun control versus abortion? And that was a way to just turn sort of this public fire hose of, of people tweeting um, into a kind of listening channel. And, um, and it kind of gave us a, a unique view into uh, some of the issues that um, were on people's minds and also when some event would happen. Um, how did the attention, our kind of collective attention of what we were at least saying out loud on Twitter, how would, how would it shift? Um, and so, for example, when there was a... Um, a, a kind of mass shooting event. I remember the conversation about gun control as an issue in the election suddenly jumped up 
and then we could see within a couple of days it would kind of fade back to uh, where it was before. So you could also see the sort of ebb and flow of um, our collective attention, you know, in response to things. So those are examples of things we could do, and and then we um, uh, work with some some newsrooms to just interpret, try to interpret some of that. Uh, those patterns and say, you know, how does that relate to what people are saying through other channels? Um, you know, for example, when they, they do talk to um, a pollster and, and give their views in a private channel. And and we did find that, you know, there were real differences in um, what people collectively were bringing, you know, spending their time and attention on, on Twitter versus uh, privately in the polls. And I think those are both valid windows into what's on people's minds. And um, I, I don't know how to sort them out and say one is more or less meaningful. They're both meaningful. Um, another thing that we've, we've looked at in our research, which is also worth mentioning, you know, one of the a really important thing that happens on Twitter is um, people share links to news stories, to, to YouTube videos, and so forth. And that sharing function is really important. It means um, beyond um, kind of conventional broadcasters, whether you're running a, you know, a, you have a television network or radio network or a podcast that has a big followership. Um, anyone who is on Twitter by retweeting can help spread um, a message. And so, you know, in, uh, in a limited way, every user on Twitter is also a broadcaster. They can make their own decision of what's worth sharing and share it. So another piece of research we did was to look at how um, news, uh, in particular, we zeroed in on news stories that were fact-checked by a number of well-known, incredible fact-checking organizations. And we asked the question, if you took all of the stories that had been fact-checked over a decade um, and look for how they were shared on Twitter. Um, could we find any patterns? In particular, since we knew from the fact checkers which stories the fact checkers thought were true versus false, we could divide up the stories into into two buckets and um, and see whether they spread differently. And we found that indeed there was striking differences where stories that turned out after fact checking to be uh, found to be false. Um, spread further and they spread far faster than the stories that turned out uh, by fact checkers to be true. So that was, uh, um, you know, in some ways might just reinforce intuitions many of us have that um, the, um, the, the made up stories that tend to be more provocative and kind of surprising are the ones that are more likely to spread. Um, and um, we found that in spades in, in this study. And so, you know, along with everyone having the ability to become a kind of broadcaster of their own, there's certain um, emergent patterns sort of um, that as a collective um, we're, we're, um, we're helping propagate sometimes the stuff that maybe collectively we wish we weren't. Yeah, I want to talk so a little bit more. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but I do want to go back to kind of the public opinion piece of it just a little bit before we, we move on and, and ask you, you talk about some of the, the, the larger patterns that your research was able to find. I'm curious what you think about the, the efficacy of, of journalists and, and other people kind of using individual tweets 
when they're reporting on a story, o- almost this kind of a, you know, a digital man on the street and just kind of you know, cherry picking mm-hmm. those and including them in news. It, it, do, you, do you feel that that has an impact or does that have a t- can that distort things in, that, in any way in your mind? Well, I think um, journalists that are using Twitter in that way, you know, kind of to, to find individual reactions to, to things. Um, there are still journalistic practices, right? Make sure you know who it is behind that tweet. And so check your sources and, and so forth. And if, you, if a journalist does that, um, I think that is just as valuable as calling up that person, getting a quote and, and quoting them in a story. Um, now, it's important that the journalists know who it is that tweeted it. And on Twitter, you can have um, anonymous accounts that you can you can tweet as if you're someone else. And so it's important to check your sources and know who you're talking to. But, yeah, I think it's a um, – in fact, I, I think Twitter in that sense is underutilized. Journalists often use Twitter as a place to um, get their message out, get their story out. Um, but it's – uh, I think just as valuable as a way to um, to tune in and listen to people. And um, yeah, so, so I mean, which brings me to kind of what I wanted to to talk about next, which is you know, certainly you can look at Twitter being a place to to kind of get a, a snapshot of public opinion, but it can also drive that public opinion and media coverage, right? And and you know there is that opportunity for it to have this kind of almost like cyclical relationship, right, where you know, you, you can learn public opinion there, but then it can also start driving that public opinion on the, on the back end. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it, Twitter, and I would generalize this, you know, to other social media platforms, you know, you're on Facebook or you're on TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, that um, it's both a place to um, learn about what's on the minds of others, but also to shape that, right? So it's a place where, public opinion and public thought is being constructed and um, in, in ways that are absolutely new, right, for us as a, as a species, right, because of the scale <laughs> and the speed at which we're connected and have lines of sight to one another. So um, we, um, yeah, we're not just learning about public opinion. Uh, we're actually co-constructing it. But at that, that kind of opens the door, though, to, to some of the issues that Twitter and other social media platforms are dealing with now, which is how to deal with content that, you know, is either dis or misinformation, hate speech. Um, we've seen that even just recently with the New York Post story on Hunter Biden. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how Twitter is, is handling that piece of the puzzle and, and, you know, what are the issues that it faces in trying to kind of get a grip on that kind of content? Yeah, it's um, well. First of all, I, I should just make clear, um, as a researcher, that you know our lab has a um, uh, uh, a data agreement with Twitter, so we're able to analyze some of the the patterns um, from our lab at MIT. Uh, but in terms of what's happening inside of Twitter and how they're making these decisions and so forth, just to just to be clear, I don't have. I'm I'm giving you an outsider's view, sure. kind of looking in now. I. I I once had an insider's view as a, where I had a role at Twitter, but that was years ago. Um, look, I think it's just a, a enormously complex um, and uh, you know situation where um, trying to be the arbiter of 
um, what is kind of high quality or reliable information um, or to even decide to what degree that is the role of one of these platforms. These are all open questions because they were not um, uh, part of the framing mission, as far as I know, of any of these platforms. But as their influence has grown um, and what we just talked about you know, a few minutes ago, just the collective attention, so everyone is now realizing how important these platforms have become, um, that these questions have arisen and, um, and uh, the, the landscape keeps changing. So um, it's a really, really hard and complex problem. And, you know, I, I think it's also interesting to, to realize that not all platforms um, are alike in terms of these issues. It's uh, whenever uh, people say to me, well, any social media platform. It just seems like it's a problem with social media. Um, yeah, the, the the kind of you know rampant spread of false you know misinformation and and um, along with it you know trolling and abuse. There's like a whole set of challenges. Um, it's interesting to look at um, LinkedIn. Um, you know, a few hundred million people. It's also a social network, um, and it's interesting how it's not that they don't have any problems at all, but um, some of these issues seem to be um, uh, much less of a problem for that for uh, that platform, and I think it's because there was a very clear and pretty narrow, in some ways, narrow sort of uh, focus of what the plat- what platform was for, whereas some of these other platforms have been um, uh, used for many different purposes by different different groups of people. And um, so there may be less kind of conventions or norms or expectations across all the users of what is and is not the purpose of this platform. So that just makes the complexity of uh, offering the platform that much that much harder. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can you can. Well, uh, well I was going to say. Yeah. Well, let's 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 maybe drill down a little bit. And, and I guess is there you know, so obviously that the, the thing you know people say is well, well they need to they need to ban certain content or take down tweets or ban certain users. And I guess you know one of the I guess one of the issues that winds up happening with that is that um, if they do that, does it in some ways just kind of make things worse? If they ban people or content, is it possible they just wind up kind of pushing people more into their own bubbles where? Someone says, "Oh, you see, they they banned it. This is clearly, you know, an effort to stifle, you know, my speech or a certain group's speech." I, I, I wonder if people kind of understand the nuance of of you know, it, it becomes almost kind of whack a mole, right? It does, and you know, I think uh, an interesting question is, um, you know, what what is good or healthy or constructive communication you know, or dialogue or media sharing, whatever it is, what does that, what does that mean? Um, and can we agree? And, and who's the we? <laughs> is it everyone who chooses to use a platform has to agree? Or should the platform be clear on what they value and put that out there as a kind of community agreement um, that, you know, here's what healthy exchanges look like. And, um, and, and there are now a lot of, um, you know, kind of experiments and sort of upstart new platforms or, or kind of spaces where 
there's a more deliberate attention, you know, on um, sort of like, here's the deal, right? Here's why we're here. Here's the kind of conversation we're having. Because otherwise, yeah, you end up with very different opinions on on the basics. Um, so uh, someone might argue for diversity of opinions and perspectives as, you know, one of the things that's just like the bedrock for having um, a constructive or healthy space for, you know, um, uh, for, for communication. And, um, and then someone might say, okay, I agree with that. And part of having um, diverse perspectives is to allow um, and support hate speech, right, or hateful speech. And someone else might say, well, no, that's, that's not what I meant. <laughs> By diverse, that's too diverse, right? And right. If, you're, if, it, if it ends up being an attack on others, um, then uh, that, that's no, that no longer is the, serving the overall purpose. So as long as we have those sorts of ambiguities where diversity means two very different things to, uh, to different parties, um, and that is not clear up front, um, Trying to retrofit a definition um, once you have hundreds of millions or, you know, in the case of Facebook, billions of users right. and trying to kind of revert, you know, retrofit really the the values and the kind of rules or the, the, the community agreement um, uh, after the fact becomes a much more challenging kind of enterprise, right? And, and then on top of that... Um, you are looking at platforms that are all global, right. and so now they're intersecting with different, different cultural norms, but also different laws, right. Right, legal systems, and the different markets that they're operating in. So, um, makes my head hurt just thinking about <laughs> uh, all the the different challenges. Right, that well, with these that, teams are with that ambiguity remaining. Uh, Mm-hmm. What's your advice to people who, who are using Twitter about using it as a source of inf- information? Are, are there some things that you would consider kind of best practices in your mind to to make it a useful tool, get the most out of it um, without you know going down rabbit holes of you know that that easily you can? Yeah, you know, I guess my own um, approach has been um, I um, first of all I. I have an overall purpose in what I use Twitter for. So I use it primarily to keep up with news and, you know, I'm, I'm a political news junkie and um, I am pretty deliberate on you know who I follow. I try to follow a pretty wide range of voices, including people I don't agree with. Um, and, um, I'm slow on the retweet, so you know one of the things that just because of you know research I've personally been involved with, um, the, the immediate uh, when you when you feel yourself just wanting in the moment compelled to share something to think twice uh, before you you share to make sure this is something that you think should be shared, um, and um, you know just paying careful attention to. Um, to sources of when you're seeing something, it sometimes is easy to just be in your in your timeline and just see all the text scrolling by and sort of lose track of sources of where different pieces of um, you know your feed are coming from to um, just be 
be thoughtful where, where it's coming from. And yeah, those are some of the things that I try to keep in mind we, I'm on Twitter. Well, well, building on that, we usually end this podcast by asking each of our guests, uh, you know, where do you get your news on a daily basis? What are your kind of go-to news sources? I know you talked about having kind of a diverse set of news sources. Can you give us maybe a little bit of a, a picture into what they, what they are and what you kind of use to, to give yourself a full picture? Sure. Um, well, I, my strategy is um, uh, if I look at my my web browser right now, I have a, a set of news sources, um, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, um, Politico, Breitbart, Globe and Mail, Atlantic Monthly, BBC, uh, Japan Times, Le Monde. So um, <laughs> there's there's a, a handful of the, the kind of mainstream American sources that I'm, I'm probably uh, – you know, touching once or twice a day. And then um, every now and then, you know, I'm, I'm, as a Canadian citizen, I'm curious what the Globe and Mail has to say. Um, and, uh, and and every now and then I'll just kind of take a, a, a step back and look at whether the BBC or Japan Times and just curious where the global attention is, at least from those other vantage points. So kind of that's, those are some of the um, the news sources that I'll pretty regularly uh, zoom into. Dr. Deb Roy, Professor of Media Arts and Sciences at MIT, Director of the Lab for Social Machines and Executive Director of the MIT Media Lab. We really do appreciate you taking some time and joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thank you.